I'm Justin Noda. And I'm Kyle Green. And you're listening to Mortgages, eh? A show designed to educate industry professionals and satiate the mortgage nerds. Underwriting, investing, getting the deals done while having a few laughs along the way. Morning, bud. Morning, bud. Now, my guest today is a staple in the Vancouver and Canadian mortgage industry. Often seen speaking at trade shows and conferences throughout Canada, he secured himself a name working with investors and high net worth clients to build their real estate portfolios. Funding over a billion dollars in mortgages, that's billion with a B, by the age of 35, running a consistently top 20 team in Canada, and most recently becoming the owner of Origin Mortgages, a successful and established DLC franchise, has this young professional's schedule extremely full. Today, though, he's joining me as co-author of Rockstar Real Estate Investing, Expert Advice for Making Your First Million, a book he co-wrote with Jesse Johnson, another prominent figure in the Vancouver real estate world, which was published in March of 2019. I'd like to welcome my friend, Kyle Green, to the podcast. Well, hello. (laughs) Nice to have you, and thanks for showing up on time. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That was... (laughs) Hey... We won't talk about that. That was yeah. one time and that was you will one time. never live it down. No, no, no. I know, right? It's going to be like months and months. Like, remember that one time you it were late for, absolutely. to the recording? Yeah, yeah. for sure it will. <laughs> and today we get to talk about something interesting, which is your book. Yeah. Right? Rockstar Real Estate Investing, co-authored with Jesse Johnson, a personal friend of yours yeah. as well, and someone yeah. that I know um, not well, but I know him through yeah. transactions and whatnot that we've had together. So I just kind of wanted to dig into a couple questions about your book and let's... Let's just get started. Yeah, let's do it. So the first thing, in your opinion, does a large ego help or hurt writers? <laughs> Are you asking me if I have a large ego, Justin? I have because implied Because the answer nothing. is absolutely yes. <laughs> <laughs> I have implied nothing in this interview. Yeah. <laughs> but I thought it was such an interesting question because in the mortgage broker world, there are so many humongous egos. Yeah, I know. And putting your ideas in a book that's forever. Yeah, I know. I think it either takes someone who does have an ego to match this or, you know, someone who has uh, maybe another motivation behind it. And I just kind of wanted to ask your opinion on that. <laughs> Good question. I think it has less to do with ego and just more to do with the fact that I've already been explaining these topics and these items so many times over and over and over again. Like in my uh, presentation folder on my computer with all my PowerPoints going back to 2000 and I think 11 and doing probably five to 10 of these a year, all about educating people on how to invest in real estate. You get to a really good point where you can explain these concepts in a really easy way. And the writing, writing of a book was just the next step for me to, uh, to deliver that in a, in a new way and to elevate yourself for sure. It puts you up on a, on a pedestal according, you know, from the client perspective. If you've written a book, it just makes you stand out in the crowd. That's awesome. And yeah. a great answer. Yeah. Right? And it's what I was expecting. So, <laughs> so let's go into the book a little bit. Why don't you tell me a little bit about it and where that idea came from to yeah. put pen to paper and actually make it happen. Well, I got to give credit where credit is due is actually Jesse's idea. Oh, nice. Yeah. So uh, we were at a, um, we were at a function. It was a, geez, it was, is a mortgage industry event. And what we, what we ended up doing was we were hanging out and he was like, you know, do you want to maybe get out of here and go back to my place and play some NHL? Like, Hell yeah, bud. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to kick your ass. <laughs> we actually bet, I can't remember, it was a 50 or 100 bucks on that game. And I lost by one goal. Defensive stalwart over here. 
But Jesse has the the deeks and the moves all down pat. So <laughs> and figures. I'm you know when I play hockey, I play def- defense. So you know I know where to be. But my hands they're stone. My hands are stone. <laughs> Same with uh, digital gaming, apparently. Um, so anyways, he he uh, proceeds to beat me by just one lousy goal, and. Um, after that, we go up upstairs having a glass of wine, I think, and and he says, so I've got this really cool idea. There's this company, and at the time, they're called Book in a Box. And uh, what he said was, hey, this is this uh, this way that you can write a book. And we basically can, can uh, you talk to the individual and you, you read it out to them and they kind of help you with the publishing, they help you with the verbiage, et cetera, and just basically just help you write a book. And he said, you know, I'm kind of interested in doing it, but like, what do you, what do you think? Like, maybe we could like write a book together. I thought it's actually a really good idea. You know, there's a moment where I'm like, maybe I'm just going to write a book by myself. Thanks for the idea. But I thought that's kind of, you know, dick move. Dick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's think the same thing, you know? And I'm like, actually, no, you know what? I think there's value in writing it together. And interestingly, one of the key, key things we looked at here was if we write it together, the marketing budget and cost for us is halved. But the benefit of giving a book to a customer and it has your name and one other person's name on it doesn't take away at all. Nobody nobody looks at it and says, oh, well, you know, obviously Jesse wrote all the in- interesting stuff in here. You know, you don't know what you're talking about because it doesn't matter. I co-authored a book with somebody else. Yeah. It, it doesn't doesn't have any less of an impact, but it, it halved the cost. And I think our cost was... I want to say it was between 25 and 30 grand Canadian when, when everything was said and done. Not to mention all the time that it takes to, to write the book too. But we uh, were able to write the book and, and uh, it, was a, it was an interesting and different, uh, different experience and different process. But that's, that's why we decided to write the book and, and why we decided to do it together. And so what was your, what was your end goal then? What, what did you hope that people were going to get out of the book? Yeah, to be, to be honest, I think I think the reason to write the book was just to elevate ourselves. So you asked earlier about ego. I mean, it's, it's less about ego and it's more about building trust with customers. The reality is if you're an author and you do public speaking and all that kind of stuff, it does elevate you in the eyes of a, of a consumer. Not to mention that a lot of these trade shows, I would be then able to offer my book at the trade show. And one of the strategies that I would often have is do a presentation and then say the first 20 people to come to my booth get a free copy of my book. And a lot of the time they, they'd want me to sign it and all that, you know, rock star stuff. For sure. <laughs> of course, right? And typically, you know, if 25 or 30 people showed up to the booth, all right, everybody gets a book. I'm sure that didn't help with your ego at all. Uh, no, of course not. <laughs> yes, everybody gets a book and there's like a lineup of people. Oh, I want Kyle's book. Give me Kyle's book. Rockstar. Ah. <laughs> yeah, not quite. Not quite. <laughs> not at these uh, real estate investing conferences. You know, people aren't uh, jumping up and down, but people would flood the booth afterwards to get a copy of the book. Generally speaking, then they're like they want to engage with you in some way, shape, or form, and uh, and not to mention, what I found is that the book has just become an expensive business card. So I'm meeting people, I have them in my car, <laughs> I have them in my you know in the office. Yeah, you know, it cost me it's a three dollar business card basically, but it elevates you in a big way. Uh, and the purpose of the book really was to take somebody that doesn't know much about real estate investing and just give them the foundation that they need to know how to invest in real estate. And so even with first-time home buyers or other people, we're trying to provide them with education and provide them with more information that says, hey, you can do it too. Yeah, and I'm going to touch on this in a little bit as well, but I found that the book was extremely well laid out, very approachable, not at all intimidating, Mm -hmm. right? Lots of the times if you're going to read like something on the, the Smith Maneuver, for example, oh right? You get words that are 
extremely small. Um, yeah. And when you open it up, you know, it could be a grind to read. I didn't find that one for this as well. So I think your explanation on um, having it, you know, accessible to people of all levels of investing, yep. um, I think was bang on. Yeah, yeah. So before we dive into the actual contents of the book, uh, I know it was published in 2019. Mm -hmm. I also know how many changes have happened since 2019. Yep. So I kind of wanted to get your take on pieces inside the book, not, not details because we're going to touch that, but does everything inside the book still hold water with all the changes that have come through the lenders and regulators, rules, guidelines, all that kind of stuff that was available in 2019 that may or may not have changed between then and now? Yeah, for the, for the most part, there's going to be little minor bits and pieces. And, and even when you use some examples, at the time, the rates were fairly low. And so we still said, yeah, let's just bump up the rate that we're using to use these calculations to make it more of a normal interest rate, something that'll be more evergreen. And that was really the a key for us was to make sure that everything that we wrote was was stuff that would be applicable in any market circumstance, in any condition. Because you're right, lenders and governments love to change policy in our industry. They so do. we really tried to focus on, on making that um, accessible and, and uh, evergreen and always valid. And to your point about having it be approachable, the structure and strategy of how to write the book Think about this for a second. There's two different voices. And so if each, just Jesse and I, just wrote our own chapters in our own words, it would be like flip-flopping back and forth like a, like a fish out of water on how we would word and how we would come across in the book. There'd be almost like you could hear the two voices if we did it that way. Instead, we actually chopped it up and focused on different chapters. But then we would discuss the chapter with the, um, with the publisher and then they would rewrite it in their words. And something I remember hearing, uh, and I always bring this up, is that the news broadcasts at a grade seven level. And so one of the important things is that we were discussing and explaining these concepts to somebody who's not in the mortgage industry, not in real estate, is just interested. And then they would rewrite it in their words, and then we would just edit minor little things to correct things that are incorrect or, or needed to be modified. But it allowed for us to A, have one consistent voice throughout the entire book, and B, to make sure that it's written from the perspective of somebody who knows nothing about this. So that was uh, an important key. And I wanted to, I picked up on your word structure yeah. inside there. And I think that's a great word to use because the structure of the book, as I said, it is well laid out, which is of close attributed to the structure of the book. Um, but I also think it'd be a great way for the listeners to kind of get a, an idea of the actual topics and the actual subject matter inside of the book and get the author's voice on those specific topics because there's not a ton of chapters. They're very detailed and they have great suggestions and great examples. But there's certain ones in there that I thought getting your direct answers from might be a fun way to do this. Yeah. Um, so I'm just going to start reading off some of the topics that I found in there, the topics which are also the, the names of the chapters. Yep. And if I could get you to, to elaborate on that, what the listener might find, any tips or tricks inside there, I'm sure they would appreciate as well. Yep. But let's just start off, uh, why invest in real estate? Yeah. So I think there's a couple of uh, factors here. The first one that I like to talk about, is, and I'm pretty sure we would have done it in this manner in the book, is the appreciation in real estate and the power of leverage. That's one, something that's fairly unique to real estate. You can do it in, in investing in stocks. If you have $5 million with private banking, you can get some leverage against your stocks. Um, you can... You can of course get leverage if you're if you're shorting and, and whatnot. But at the end of the day, for the most part, leverage doesn't exist in the other investment vehicles like it exists in mortgage financing and um, and real estate. And so the ability to put twenty percent down payment on a rental property 
What that means is that for every 1% of appreciation, the return on investment is 5%. So if you bought a property for $500,000 and put $100,000 down, if the property goes up by 10%, so it goes from $500,000 to $550,000, your return on investment isn't 10%. It's actually 50% because the value went from five hundred dollars to five fifty. dollars So you've made $50,000, but your investment was $100,000. You didn't buy it with cash. You bought it and levered it, right? So you only put $100,000 in. So if you make 50 grand on 100 grand, your return on investment is 50%. So the key is if you're putting 20% down, you're leveraging your money five to one. That means for every 1% of appreciation, your return on investment is 5%, right? If you use a 3% annual appreciation, which historically in Canada has been the the long-term average. In fact, you can't find a 10-year period in Canada where the average home price in Canada isn't higher over a 10-year period. You could probably find some smaller towns and whatnot where that's not true, where maybe the mine shuts down or whatever. On average in Canada, and for most urban centers, you're going to find that over a 10-year period, the average home price is higher after 10 years. Using a 3% annual appreciation, then the return on investment from buying real estate, just from the appreciation perspective, is 15% per year, which is really high. That's that is high. high, right? So then we then we kind of zoom out and say, okay, so we, we now we understand one of the core concepts that's unique to investing in real estate. The second thing I want to talk about is how you make money in real estate. And there's really three, and then there's a kind of a fourth option and, and way of, of how you make money in real estate. So the return on investment or ROI is calculated from three different things. Uh, the return on investment from investing in real estate is from the cash flow, from the appreciation, and then from the mortgage paydown. And the mortgage paydown is something that people don't think about a lot. Uh, it's not sexy. Your cash flow might be zero to four percent return on investment every year. If you buy something with twenty percent down and it covers itself, then that's that's not bad. The appreciation uh, we talked about that. That if your annual appreciation is three percent and you put twenty percent down, so you know one fifth of the property value down, your return on investment is fifteen percent per year from that. The mortgage paydown is the one that people don't think about, and the mortgage paydown, generally speaking usually represents about a 6 to 9% return on investment just from paying down the mortgage. So this is an important key when you're looking at, you know, why invest in real estate? Well, the returns are really good. And people believe in real estate in Canada, you know? Uh, they're not making any more of it, right? The, the term uh, or the, the saying goes, you know, don't wait to buy real estate, buy real estate and wait which is pretty cool. <laughs> I like that a, one. I haven't heard that before. You haven't heard that one before? No. Oh man, I love that one. That's great. But you add it up, if you get 0 to 4% from the cash flow, you get, you know, 6 to 9% from the mortgage paydown and then you're getting maybe a 15% and again, that's a projected number, but 15% from the appreciation, then your return on investment is in the 20s, you know? And yes, when interest rates go up, the cash flow can go negative and the uh, mortgage paydown can go down, but also if interest rates go down, then the cash flow goes up and the and the um, amount that you're paying down on the mortgage starts to increase as well. Uh, appreciation comes in waves, you know? It doesn't come like consistently, oh, here's your 3% every year. But in many urban centers, it'll be zero, 1%, negative 5%, 2%, and then boom, 20% in one year. And so that's an important thing too when you look at investing in real estate. It's not an in and out thing. And we will talk about flips, which are an in and out thing. But in general, buying cash flow real estate is not buy it with a specific exit time frame. It's usually buy it and keep it for a really, really long period of time. And the appreciation will come. But you have to make sure that you're investing and you have, you're able to hold on to it for long enough to realize that appreciation because it often just pops in a specific year or period of time. But if you are forced to sell it before that pop, 
then you might actually lose money in real estate. But in general, the way I look at it is that if if you're in a situation where you're not forced to sell the real estate asset, you will probably make money in real estate. Great suggestions. Yeah. Chapter two. Yeah. Borrowing $100,000 from yourself. From yourself. Well, you alluded a little bit to the Smith Maneuver earlier today, and that's usually the structure. So when we sit down with a customer and go over what step number one is to invest in real estate, it's typically to restructure the residence. And the reason that you do that is uh, your down payment, you can borrow it from yourself. A lot of people think, oh, I don't have down payment. I don't have any cash saved up. You don't actually need to save up cash to use for down payment. In fact, it's actually better if you borrow it. And even if you had cash, there's a method and a way that you can still use the cash, but still uh, create a benefit for yourself. So here's here's an important thing, is that whenever you borrow money to invest, the interest portion of the payments is tax deductible. So if you have a mortgage and a line of credit secured against your home, you can borrow money against the line of credit for your down payment. So you could borrow your 20% down from your home and then use that for the down payment on the rental property itself. And when you do that, the mortgage on the rental property is tax deductible, but also the money you borrowed for the down payment is also tax deductible because it was for investment purposes. Now, one of the cool things is let's say that a customer has saved up $100,000 and they want to use that for their down payment. We would often recommend and say, well, why don't you take that money and pay down your personal non-tax deductible mortgage? We'll restructure the mortgage so that it's a mortgage plus line of credit component. Ideally, what's called a re-advanceable mortgage, whereas you pay down the mortgage, the line of credit limit increases, so it's connected together. And then what you can do is you take the cash, pay down your non-tax deductible mortgage, re-borrow it back out. You still now borrow and owe the same amount as you did before. But now that you can show uh, the CRA that you have a paper trail that you've borrowed the $100,000, you get to write off the interest. And if, let's say, the interest cost is 6%, that's $6,000 per year in interest you're writing off. And if you're at a 30% tax bracket, that's $1,800 a year in tax savings by this little tiny piece of advice. Always, again, have to preface this and say, talk to your accountant, make sure that this works for you. There's no reason that it wouldn't work. But uh, but it's really important to explain this. And I do find that changing the conversation from what rate I'm going to give you to I'm a strategist, I'm going to teach you how to save money in tax. If I've just showed a client how they can save $1,800 per year in taxes, then they're very sticky customers all of a sudden. They're like, oh man, I've got to team up with this person. So the borrowing from yourself structure is generally just borrowing against the equity that you have in in existing real estate. And it usually is the way to do it. You set up the residence as your hub, you chip away and pay off that non-tax deductible debt, and you borrow money back out to then invest into real estate, and then you're able to write off the interest portion of the payments. And uh, you're also paying off your own mortgage at the same time too. So you're still deleveraging yourself. And who doesn't love tax write-offs? Ooh, I love tax write-offs. Wherever you can get them, right? Yeah, exactly. So chapter three, kind of the same thing, a little bit different. Um, Borrowing $100,000 from a friend. Yeah, exactly. So as mortgage brokers, we know that you can't actually really do that. (laughs) (laughs) It's not just, yeah, I got a gift letter from uh, from Joe here. He's going to give me 100 grand, no problem. Again, the intention of this was just to show that you can get a bit creative with it. But really what we're talking about in that chapter is more on the joint venture side of things. So you're not technically borrowing money, but you're you're actually maybe investing with them, doing a joint venture with them. So I won't go into all the specific details, but we talked about how to do a joint venture, how to structure those properly, uh, examples of different uh, successful ventures. I think one of the key concepts we talked about in that chapter would be that when you're getting into a joint venture partnership, there are generally four ways that you add value in a joint venture partnership. And that would be being the managing partner, being the deal finder, being the qualifying partner, 
and being the cash partner. And you can be a combination of any one of these four items. Uh, Sometimes the deal is so good that you're just the deal finder and you find another joint venture partner that puts up the cash, qualifies for it, and, and even manages it. But what I do find is in general, a lot of joint ventures are structured where it's either 50-50 on the cash, one person found the deal, the other person manages it. Sometimes the deal finder is the, also the manager and deals with all the issues, and, and that's very common. And then the other partner is the cash partner and qualifying partner. And in general, again, a, a mortgage broker would or should know this, the cash partner has to be the qualifying partner. You can't be the qualifier without the cash because the lender's going to say, well, where's your money coming from? Oh, Joe's giving it to me. No problem, right? Yeah, no, that's not how it works. Um, so we talked a lot about joint ventures and how you add value in a joint venture. And and the shocking reality for a lot of people is that if you find a really good deal, the money will come. People think that it's impossible to go to, to people and ask for, for money uh, to put into a deal when they're not putting any money in themselves. But the reality is if the deal's good enough, then then that will happen. And I've done a number of joint ventures where I put no money into the deal myself. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting chapter just because of the market that we find ourselves in now and how, whether it's a joint venture with a friend, a family, an investor, a stranger, I found more people are culminating with, with their money and their resources in order to um, still find deals yep. out there. Um, so even back in, in, in 2019, and I know we touched base on the, the relevance of the book now compared to then, even in 2019, you know, that was a, a big thing that I think is even a bigger thing now than it was then. Yep. Um, so next is no approval, no problems, which <laughs> as a mortgage broker has my hairs on end. So, <laughs> so, exactly. so I'm curious. <laughs> You're curious. All right. <laughs> I think that uh, the, the key with this is we're diving back into the joint venture side of things a little bit to say, look, if you can't get qualified for a mortgage, no problem. If you got a really good deal, then find a joint venture partner to do it with you. The other side of the coin too is that if a bank won't qualify you, then maybe a B lender or a private lender could qualify you. And we talk a little bit about different options and going back to, circling back to the tax side of things, if you're self-employed and you don't claim enough income on your tax returns, it doesn't mean that you can't qualify for a mortgage. It means that maybe you have to go to a B lender. But keep in mind, you might be in a situation where uh, maybe you claim $30,000 in your taxes each year on your taxable income and you have a low taxable uh, taxable amount of uh, that you pay each year. However, in order for you to qualify, you'd have to be at $100,000 income with a bank. If you look at that spread or, or difference there, it might actually be better for you to pay less in tax and more on the mortgage. And this is something we talk about a lot, which is that when you're self-employed, sometimes it can be better to pay less in tax and more in your mortgage rate. So the whole point of that chapter is really to talk about, hey, just because a bank told you no doesn't mean that there aren't other options. Yeah, important to know on the consumer side and the brokering side. Yeah, exactly. So the next chapter, uh, which is building a band, um, which uh, I'll let you touch base. I love that chapter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> building the band. Well, you can't have a good rock band without a good lead singer and a good drummer and, you know, and a, and a good bassist. The reality is that you have to build a team around you and you're only as good as your weakest point. And I think it's important to make sure that, you know, as a, if you're investing in real estate, many realtors are going to focus more on your typical homeowners because that's their typical customer. A, a realtor might show you a home that if, doesn't specialize in investment properties. And they might say, hey, here's a great home. It's right across the street from the school. It's got a nice walk-in closet. It's got this. It's got that. Now, from an investment perspective, do, do you really care about those things? 
only if it gets you more rental income or if it gets you more appreciation, right? There's not a lot of realtors out there that that understand how to actually calculate the cash flow of a potential asset. And to be able to say, hey, this is a good deal because of the cash flow and look at the overall return and investment of buying this versus that. So there's a number of different realtors that uh, that we do work with quite a bit out there that do focus on this. They understand the number side of things, which a lot of realtors don't really focus on or specialize in. And if you're a realtor out there and you're selling to an investor, you need to wear a different hat. It's really important that you're thinking, okay, I'm selling to an investor. What is the investor looking for? They're looking at cash flow. They're looking at future appreciation. They're looking at ways of being able to uh, to improve the asset and see appreciation over time. So uh, I think that's really, really important. Um, Same comes for the lawyer, accountant. Uh, It's interesting, especially when you start to get advice on, should I incorporate or not? Oh, man. As a mortgage broker, we look at it and say, well, it's going to increase your costs. There's, there, it's higher, harder to get qualified. The rates are higher, et cetera. Also, from the accounting perspective, it can make sense or not make sense. From the legal perspective, a lot of lawyers will recommend it because from their perspective, it's, it just limits risk and, and reduces risk, which of course, from a lawyer, that's what they're here to do, right? If, effectively, if, if the property's owned underneath a company name and something happened, let's say that there's a tree root growing underneath the sidewalk and it was, the tenant told the owner five times to fix it and didn't fix it. And then the uh, tenant's grandmother came over for, uh, for cake one day and trips over it and breaks her hip. Well, you could be sued. And if, it's, if they're suing the individual, then all assets the individual owns are at risk. Where if it's in a holding company, then only the assets in the holding company are at risk, right? And you can mitigate risk by having adequate insurance and all these other things too. But but that's one of the, the keys. And if, the problem is if you talk to different accountants, the borrower might get different information. You talk to three different accountants, you get three different answers on whether you should incorporate or not. And there should only be two answers, yes or no. Yeah. <laughs> but you still get three somehow. <laughs> I don't know how that works. So I think that building the band and getting people that actually understand uh, the real estate investor side of things is really, really important. And one other note that I want to talk about is as a mortgage broker, when you're trying to piece to get together a deal for a client, it's important to look at things holistically. And the more that you can look at and say, you know, take yourself out of your own shoes for a second and not just say, it's more expensive for you to get a mortgage if you put it in a personal name or a company name versus a, more, a personal name. Still need to look at the tax side of things. And I'm going to go back to tax a lot because that's an important distinction or, or a differentiator is if you can show how Yes, it's going to be a bit more expensive on the mortgage side, but you're going to save more than that on the tax side. And you can join up and team up with the accountant and have that conversation about, let's talk about a holistic game plan for this client. And you can be the facilitator of that. Um, You're removing the conversation away from getting the best mortgage to being the best provider. And you're looking at all solutions for the customer. And so I think that's important. And taxes do seem to take a a big role in real estate investing. And I don't think the next topic is any different. No. Um, and that is mastering the art of the flip. Yeah, yeah. So a, a flip is is very different and unique, obviously. And there's a lot of different things to look at. A couple of really core concepts we talked about in that chapter would be trying not to buy uh, the nicest house on a poor street or, or not so nice street. You want to be the opposite. You want to bring a property up to the average or slightly above average. You do not want to be the nicest property on, on a street ever. That's generally where the the value is, is you go to a nice street with a not-so-nice house, and you improve that house and bring it up to the standard of, of others. Uh, you can go above average, but if you go exceptional status, you start to have some diminishing returns because let's say that you you uh, bought a, a unit in a condo building 
and it's a 1970s built condo building. And no matter how nice you make the inside, the first thing that you look at is, you know, the old stucco on the outside of the building. There's certain things that you can't improve and you can't change about that condo. Yeah. And so if you're, you know, it's glistening inside and you've got quartz countertops and you've got all these fancy things inside, you're still being held back by the nature of the rem- the rest of the common areas and whatnot in the condo that you don't have control over. And so as a general concept, you want to make sure that you're not putting too much money into something to take it way above and beyond. Uh, so that's one of the key concepts. Another is understanding what improves value on a, on a property and what does not improve value. For instance, a pool could actually be in a situation where you do not take away from the value or, or you do not do not improve the value. Because some people will say, well, now that I have a pool in my backyard, I actually can't have my young children running around back there anymore and I have a smaller yard. So there are some circumstances here where putting in a pool might not benefit you. Some of the things, if you talk to a, an appraiser, which we're going to have to get an appraiser on the show, by the way. Absolutely. Yeah, because uh, I think there's a lot of cool things we can talk about there. We've talked to an appraiser and you ask them, what are the items and the things that you can do to improve the home value? The general core concepts would be cosmetic items, primarily, flooring, painting, kitchen, bathroom. Those are the Those are the key items. Those are the ones that you can actually put money in and get more money back out on it. Um, whereas things like upgrading the furnace, upgrading stuff that you can't see behind the walls, um, upgrade, upgrading the perimeter drain or, f- or roofing, things like that, that people don't really see or interact with all the time. Those are the things that people are not as willing to pay for in general. So you usually want to avoid those when you're doing a flip. Last but not least is just doing the analysis. And one of the things that you'll find is that the longer the timeline that it takes to do the flip, the the higher risk the deal is. Because the more that the market can change over that six months or a year, if it takes you a year to do the flip. So speed is a, is an enemy or can be your friend if you're really quick. Uh, but you want to make sure that you're in and out as soon as possible. It reduces carrying costs and it reduces risk. And just make sure that you're doing the analysis with all of the costs involved. The number of times that I have a client that says, yeah, I'm going to buy this thing for 500 grand and I'm going to put 50 grand in. It's going to be 600 grand and I'm going to make 50 grand. How about property transfer tax if you're in a province that has that? How about the realtor fees? How about the carrying costs? How about the, oh, by the way, you don't qualify. So you have to get a private loan, which is going to be, you know, a, a point or two for the lender, a point for the broker, et cetera. So there's all these additional fees that need to be factored in. So making sure that there's a budget done to that that uh, calculates all of that out. And I actually built one uh, myself that I give to customers. Anybody that wants a copy, I'm, I'm happy to email that out to them. But it's a really quick version of like, what is the purchase price? What is the cost? What are all the costs? And then what is the future value going to look like? And make sure that it actually is going to generate a positive return. Yeah, this is all great. And it's so much information that I just wanted to point out to everybody listening that there is so much more in the book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You are covering a whole myriad of topics and going, you know, very information heavy on it, but there's even more inside the book, right? So don't think that he's just telling you exactly what's in the book. There's stuff in there that you should definitely uh, read for yourself, figure out. Kyle loves a whole bunch of emails and a whole bunch of question asks. So feel free to to reach out to him and ask all the questions that you want. All Um, of them. Just ask all of them. But it leads up to the next next chapter and it's the second last one, but I think it has the most interesting title, which is buying the $1 condo. Yeah, yeah. Jesse's idea again. He comes up with all the good ideas. I just kind of follow around. (laughs) So the $1 condo, I would reference some another term that people have heard is uh, is the Burr buy, uh, renovate, um, rent, refinance, yep. and so uh, it's the same kind of thing. I don't. Know. I think one dollar condo sounds way sexier than Burr. By the way, it does. I you agree. Know, burr, I just imagine I'm shivering somewhere, you know, with <laughs> penguins or something like that. Well, actually, 
Penguins would be cool. No, I'm shivering in Edmonton when the, when the snow hits, you know? <laughs> but uh, but the $1 condo basically is the same concept. So for those of you who don't know, um, the idea is if you bought a condo for, let's say, $400,000 and put 20% down payments, you've got a mortgage of three hundred twenty grand on it, put eighty grand into the deal. If you can find a way where you maybe put, you know, $20,000 into the property in renovations, and then now you're going to go in and get a refinance and pull out, uh, let's say that the property is now worth $500,000 as an example. Now you're going to refinance and pull out uh, a mortgage and you're going to bump up your mortgage from 320000 up to four hundred grand. If you think about it, what you ended up doing is initially you put down 20% down, which is $80,000. And then you put another twenty grand in. So now you've put in hundred grand total. But then when you refinance, you bump the mortgage up from three twenty. dollars up to $400,000. And so now you're pulling back $80,000 back out of the property. So in that case, it's a $20,000 condo. You know, it's it's pretty Still close pretty good. to a dollar, right? <laughs> uh, and of course, you have to find opportunities and have to be really good opportunities. You usually need a little bit of help, by the way. It's not common that you can find a property where putting a little bit of money into it is going to generate such a positive increase to the value. But there are circumstances where you can do that. In general, though, you usually need a little bit of help maybe by the market appreciating a little bit too, right? But it is definitely possible. And um, and that was kind of the, the point of it. We went and talked about the... Obviously, we already talked about the flipping in the previous chapter. The whole point of that was just to go into more of the number side of things and say, well, what if you kept it? Because keep in mind, one of the important things when you're looking at a flip is what happens if the market sucks when I go to flip it? right? Now, if I have to hold it, what am I going to do? And as a mortgage broker, a lot of the time what we do is if we do have a client that is looking at at something where they don't know if they're going to sell it or they're going to keep it at the end of the day, we actually often will build it in and just do a purchase plus improvements right off the bat. Because at least that way, the borrower is guaranteed to get their costs back out. Because otherwise, they might be stuck where they put 20% down and maybe put an extra you know, 100 grand into renovations. And all of a sudden, it's all sitting on credit cards. Now they can't sell the property, so they decide to keep it as a long-term rental. But they've got 100 grand sitting on credit instead of that 100 grand sitting on, on their mortgage itself. And that's an extreme example, obviously. That's a very large purchase plus improvements. Only a few lenders would do. <laughs> but uh, maximum usually is $40,000 uh, $40, or 10% of the, of the home value in general with most lenders. Uh, but that's an important thing to think about is is how do you set up your your client for success? Because keep in mind, even if they're planning on flipping, it might not be a, su- a successful flip. It uh, it might be a floppy flip. <laughs> is that like a tricky trick? It's a tricky trick, but a floppy flip. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so on the last chapter then is next level investing. Yeah. And uh, what exactly do you mean by that? Yeah, um, we we just touched on a couple of the more complex or unique structures and different things that you can look at when investing in real estate. So one of the ways that we looked at it was a rent-to-own. Rent-to-owns are kind of cool. cool. Rent-to-owns are pretty cool because um, what is happening is you're getting into a home where you're getting somebody that uh, is your tenant. They're going to eventually be buying the home. And so you get a higher quality tenant. It's not, not likely to trash the place, which is step number one. Number two, when they enter into a rent-to-own, usually there's an upfront deposit, which is anywhere from 5%, well, I should say anywhere from 3% to as high as I've seen them, as high as 20%. So a rent-to-own is giving you a percentage of the down payment you put into the deal right back into your pocket, which when you run a, an analysis on the uh, return on investment can improve that significantly. And probably the key concept here with the rent-to-own is that the rent-to-tenant uh, buyer is entering into agreement to buy the property in the future at an inflated price compared to today. 
And in general, that inflated price is kind of built into a certain amount of appreciation. So I've seen anywhere from 3% to 7% appreciation. I think 7% is pretty high, in my opinion. That would be pretty good. Yeah, yeah for the investor, yeah. of course, right? But usually about 3 to 4% appreciation kind of caked into it. And so you're buying it in the future. Often the ones that I see are three-year contracts with a two-year extension option at the um, at the option of the tenant buyer. And usually the price is the first three years and then the extension option comes at a higher price uh, if they if they extend the uh, the option up to five years in total. And what they're doing is they're not only paying for the rent, for the market rents each month, but they're also paying an amount that goes towards the deposit. So you put an upfront deposit and then they're putting an additional amount that's credited back to them once they go to close on the transaction. So from the investor's perspective, you've bought a property that you have exit strategy quite clear. The tenant buyer is either going to buy it in year three or year five at these prescribed prices. Or if they don't, then you're going to still own the property, except you had somebody that paid you market rents, probably took better care of it than a regular tenant, put in money up front for the initial deposit, and also paid in even more money per month because they had the rent and then additional money that goes towards the rents, rent credits. And in general, a lot of that money does not go back to the tenant buyer in most of these contracts if they do not complete on the transaction. Now, I know what some of you are thinking is these are hard to finance, and that is true. Yep. There are some requirements with CMHC where one of the major requirements is that you can't have all of the credits disappear if they don't exercise the option to purchase the property. So you have to make sure the contract is written in a way that allows them to get a percentage or a portion of that money back if they don't exercise the option. So you need to make sure that you talk to a lawyer about this. I do think from a strategy perspective, rent-to-owns are very interesting and unique. Um, however, you do have to find a way of finding these tenant buyers, and that in itself is a bit of a business. Um, so we often would see that these rent-to-own companies are the ones that source and filter out the leads for people that might be a high-quality tenant buyer, and then they will charge a placement fee to put a tenant buyer into your home. And that often is a way that makes a lot of sense, unless you wanted to just make it a business on your own. But the, the process of screening all of these potential tenant buyers and uh, checking credit, seeing if they will have enough income to qualify for it in the future, um, the number of people that inquire and then never actually send an application in, it's a, it's a major filtering process to filter through the 100 applicants to find the two that actually are good potential tenant buyers. The other challenge is in many cases, investors like to say, hey, this property... I'd love to have a, a uh, rent-to-own on it. But now you have to find a tenant buyer who wants that specific property. And in general, it makes it a little bit easier to find an appropriate tenant buyer when the home is selected by the tenant buyer, approved by the investor, and then the investor buys that specific home on behalf of mm -hmm. the tenant buyer. So it's a bit of a different structure. A lot of investors say, oh, this place isn't making me any money. I'm going to do a rent-to-own. Well, guess what? You're going to be able to find somebody who's going to want to own that home in the future <laughs> if you don't want it either, right? That's the other half. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The other key concept I, I talked about in that uh, last chapter that I think is really relevant here is, is on the commercial side of real estate. So it's a really cool concept, and it's been called the multiplier effect. There's other terms for it, I think, too. But it's, it's actually the uh, some of the key fundamentals on how commercial financing works, how commercial valuations work. So you have three things that work interchangeably together. You have value, cap rate, and NOI. And NOI stands for um, net operating income. And so those three things collectively together, uh, those all work interchangeably. So what happens is if you have two of the values, you can solve for the third. Okay. Um, the way it works is let's say that you had a million dollar property 
A cap rate is a function of what the market expects to earn in, in cash flow if the property is owned free and clear with no mortgage on it. So a 5% cap rate market means that a million dollar property in a five cap market would generate $50,000 a year in net operating income. So net operating income still factors in the property taxes and all the other uh, expenses of, of actually running that business, so to speak. And what you'll find is that I think it's a very common misconception that you want to find properties with a higher cap rate. A cap rate is actually a market-determined figure, okay? So would you rather, let me just ask you a question, Justin, would you rather own a property in Vancouver or would you rather own a property in Tumblr Ridge, which for those of you that aren't from BC, is a mining mining town with like one employer for the whole town? Uh, Vancouver. Okay. And how much more would you pay for that property in Vancouver? Quite a bit. Quite a bit. <laughs> and guess what? The market agrees with you. Yes. Right? And so where you find that that number being adjusted is actually in the cap rate. So people are willing to pay more money for less cash flow in markets like Vancouver because they're safer, they have higher expected appreciation, less risk, et cetera. Uh, people are willing to pay more money for that. So a cap rate is a function of the perceived risk in a marketplace. A cap rate is not a individual driven number. You don't buy a property and improve the cap rate on it. You improve the net operating income on it, which does improve the value. So what ends up happening here is if I reverse it, and this is this is where things get really cool on this concept, okay? A million dollar property and I, I'm buying a property in a five cap market. That means that I'm expecting $50,000 in net operating income per year, okay? It also means that in a five cap market, people are willing to pay $20 to receive $1 of net operating income per year. Mm. That's, the, that's the math on it because 5% goes into 120 times. For those of you, the mathletes out there, I know you're following me. The rest of you, I might need to explain it one more time. <laughs> but basically, five-cap market means that investors are willing to pay $20 for every $1 of net operating income per year. You can flip this around. You can say, well, if I improve the NOI by a dollar, the value goes up by $20. So in fact, buying and improving an asset in a low cap rate market actually improves value in a more drastic way. A 2% cap rate, for instance, means that it's 50 to 1. So if I improve the NOI by $1, I've improved the valuation by $50. So one of the, the cool things, and I remember the, the eye-popping moment for me when I kind of, it really hit me is I knew a company that was going down to the US and they're buying apartment buildings down there. And they had an example where they bought a 200 unit apartment building and they had it under contract. And while they had it under contract, they slipped notices underneath each door and said, would you pay an extra $50 a month to have a washer and dryer installed in your unit? And about half of them said yes, okay? Now, in that, uh, in that building, there's a, already a closet near the front door that already had the hookups uh, for uh, electrical and the plumbing, which made it really cheap and easy. So they could go out and they could buy a, bu a bunch of washers and dryers. It would cost them about $1,500 per set. So out of 100 units, it would cost them $150,000 to put washers and dryers in each unit. Now, if you look at the income earned by, uh, by this... Uh, they were going to to get fifty dollars more per month, six hundred dollars more per year per unit. That's times hundred units. That's sixty thousand dollars more in income. 
And in the in the climate down in uh, Phoenix, it was at the time, this is a number of years ago, the cap rate in Phoenix was 6%. So the way the math works out, if you want to figure out what the, if we have, we have two of the factors now, we have the cap rate and we have the NOI on that Im- improved amount. In order to determine the increase to the value, you take the NOI and you divide it by 6%. So you just take $60,000 divided by 6%. That number is a million dollars. So they spent $150,000 in putting washers and dryers in the building. And the value increased by $1 million because of the amount of income that they, that uh, it's generating now. Wow. Isn't that crazy? That's nuts to me. So the question is, would you like... Would you like to spend $150,000 and get a million dollars, Justin? Yes, please. Yes, please. Yes, <laughs> I think you would all like it. So this is a really cool concept and this is what all the smart guys do in the commercial space, in the multifamily space. This is what everybody's trying to do. They're trying to um, do value-add projects is a term that's used quite a bit with these. They try to add value, generates more income than the cost of adding the value um, and, um, and then it generates a higher valuation. And the cool thing is once they did all that, they spent 150 grand on the work. Then they went to their bank a year later and said, hey, look at our financials. We ordered washers and dryers. We did this, we did this, we did this. And they refinanced and pulled out 75% loan to value. So they pulled out 75% of the million dollars. So they put 150 grand in, pulled out 750, and now they've got 600 grand of magic money that came out of nowhere. That's amazing. It's really hot, right? No kidding. <laughs> That's burr. Yeah. Right? It almost sounds like they're buying, renovating, refinancing. It, it is, yeah. but it's on, on steroids. Level. It's on steroids on the commercial side. Yeah. And it's just that most investors don't have the capital to do a project of that magnitude. Uh, there's more risk, of, of course, involved. But it's, uh, but it's actually not that difficult to do it once you kind of get into the habit of understanding and identifying the opportunities. And so the opportunities in the commercial space are actually much larger and bigger and, and better than they are in the residential space because people buy commercial real estate based on the income. And so it's a different approach altogether. When you're buying uh, real estate on the residential side, it's based mostly on, and this is going back to appraisals, it's basically uh, based mostly on the market comparables. And so if you put 50 grand into the property, maybe you can squeeze an extra 100 grand out of it because now maybe brought it up to uh, up to similar properties that have, that have sold for, for prices that are 100 grand more than what you paid for it. Um, but in the commercial space, if you had opportunities to put in uh, a little bit of money to improve the income in, in a substantial way, you can greatly improve the valuation and make out like a bandit. Yeah, if you didn't know, you didn't know. Yeah. Right. But now everyone who's listening to you, hopefully they know. Now you know. And I'm going to bring it back to one thing that I said at the beginning where this book is extremely well laid out. It's extremely accessible and it's full of a ton of great information, which you've just um, told us some, but not all. So I encourage everyone to reach out, grab the book, have a read for yourself, see if you can take something from it. At the very least, you're going to have a really good read and you'll come away with a bigger, better understanding of real estate investing. So I just wanted to kind of wrap this up with just a couple little questions, um, not necessarily pertaining to the book, but more to yourself. Yep. What was your favorite childhood book? Oh, wow. Favorite childhood? I would probably say the Lord of the Rings series was really, really awesome. Um, those you actually really got good. through that one? I did, yeah. Did you? Good yeah. for you. There, there you go right there, I'm guys. a nerd. If you, you already know this, I Justin, know but I'm a nerd. Um, <laughs> I did get through it. It took me some time. I remember I got The Hobbit when I was like eight or nine years old, and I, I struggled and struggled, and then I finally got through it. I'm like, whoa, this is really good. It is really good. Yeah, so it takes some time to kind of get through it. Um, but 
but that was definitely one of them. Harry Potter, I mean, I was a, like late teens, early 20s, I think, when so Harry good. Potter came up. But those were great books too. Oh, so. And the books. I, I love. I started with the movies and then my wife got me onto the books. Um, and the books are so much better. They are, totally. And there's no getting around it's it. It's so hard to fit everything in yeah. into, a, into a movie, right? Yeah, so. exactly. Do you have any more books planned or any half-published books sitting on your shelf? <laughs> Well, I'm trying not to half do things because it's highly inefficient. Um, <laughs> but I actually would really like to write a book. And maybe after, after we've got a lot of episodes done with our podcast, we can kind of collate a bunch of this information and put a book together. Yeah. I've really wanted to write a book. Just finding the time, obviously, is, is difficult. But I do have some longer-term plans to maybe write another book. And that'll be more on helping brokers build a brokering business. I think that as my career is evolving, I'm getting... Uh, uh, slowly, you know, I'm, I'm trying to build more uh, of a of a brand recognition with like working with other brokers and helping them build their business. Now that I've I've uh, been able to build up my business at a certain point, I think I want to slowly evolve into more teaching, education, and and helping other brokers be uh, be super brokers if they want that. That's awesome. Yeah. And lastly, if I was to turn on your your iPhone now, what would you be listening to? Well, which podcast? I don't have an Android? iPhone because Android. Go Android. Android. You, you guys know Android. Yeah. What music am I listening to? Or podcasts or, or podcasts? Audiobooks. What's what fills your time when you're not dealing with with mortgages? Yeah. Well, uh, when I'm not dealing with mortgages, oh man, I'm listening to podcasts about mortgages. No. <laughs> uh, business though, I'm definitely I'm a nerd that way. I'm always listening to uh, to business podcasts. I'm listening to a lot of stuff about uh, software creation because I'm building out some software in the for the mortgage business right now, and it's a very different business than a service-based business like like doing mortgages. Some of my favorite books that I've listened to or read, I like to reread and re-listen to, I suppose, on Audible. One of those that I read recently that is not, it's kind of a business book, but not quite, uh, that was really good, was, uh, was Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. That was the story of Nike. I thought that was very interesting and intriguing, and it helped and held my attention for quite some time. And um, yeah, other than that, I think that it's hard for me to go. I, I've got like 40 or 50 books in, on Audible right now. So uh, other than that, the only other book that I would say that I've read recently physically was um, Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself. And that book is is all about uh, meditation. Uh, after I got my concussion, I started to try to work on meditating. It seems like people all talk about it. You don't really find a lot of time to do it. And I'm trying my best. It's not easy to get into the habit, but I'm doing my best to uh, to do that more. So uh, that's by Joe Dispenza. Well, this has been super interesting. Thank you very much for taking some time and uh, talking with us about rock star real estate investing, eh? Yeah. <laughs> Happy to be here. <laughs> Later, bud. Later, bud. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to sit with us. Hopefully you're able to take a couple things from today's episode, implement it into your everyday, and improve in the areas you need to. For direct interaction with us, please join the conversation through our Facebook community. Check the link in the show notes, and happy brokering.